This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, Tufts University professor Chris Miller discusses his book, Chip War. He traces the history of microchip technology and how it has become the most critically needed technology globally. Uh, about five years ago, I was thinking I was going to write a book on uh, the Cold War arms race because one of the uh, key questions that had motivated me was why was it that in the Cold War, the Soviet Union could make nuclear weapons, they could make missiles and rockets that shot the first satellite into space, but they could never miniaturize computing power. And that seemed to me an important question for the history of uh, the Cold War. He's interviewed by Democratic Congressman Jim Himes, Democrat from Connecticut. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I'm Congressman Jim Himes, and I'm just uh, delighted to be joining Chris Miller to talk about his uh, his new book, Chip War. I'm uh, I'm I'm holding it right here. I, I read it. I uh, uh, as I just told the author, if you told me that I was going to enjoy a 400 page book on the history of semiconductors, I would have said you were crazy. But this reads like a spy novel. It is it is it is absolutely gripping, believe it or not. Um, you know, going back to the 1950s when the uh, semiconductor, uh, first of all, the concept of a semiconductor, but subsequently the, ev- the evolution of the industry uh, began. So I'm just so thrilled to be joined by uh, Professor Chris Miller. Um, and Chris, I really, again, great book, uh, could not have been more timely considering the congressional passage of the CHIPS Act, and we'll get to that. But let me start with the fairly obvious question, which is, um, you know, you're a professor. I looked at the list of the books you'd written. You'd written mostly on Russia, uh, about the transformation of the Russian economy, uh, about about Vladimir Putin, also very timely. Um, but not, a mu- not much about the sort of protagonists of chip war, not a lot about the Taiwanese, the, 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 the Chinese, the Japanese. What, um, uh, uh, tell us sort of what, uh, what prompted you to get interested in the topic and to do the research that resulted in this, uh, in this remarkable book. Well, thank you, Jim, first off, for hosting this conversation. Um, when, when I started this research uh, about five years ago, I was thinking I was going to write a book on uh, the Cold War arms race because one of the uh, key questions that had motivated me was why was it that in the Cold War the Soviet Union could make nuclear weapons, they could make missiles and rockets that shot the first satellite into space, but they could never miniaturize computing power. And that seemed to me an important question for the history of uh, the Cold War. But as I began to dig into that, I came to realize that the answer to that question had to do with the origins of computer chips, which first emerged in uh, missile and rocket guidance systems in the early Cold War. And I came to realize this uh, just as the U.S. government was ramping up its com- competition with China to control the future of chip technology. And I sort of put these two pieces together, the, the history of chips and missile technology and the current U.S.-China competition, and realized that there was an in- 
entire history of the last 60 years that you really couldn't understand without knowing much about computer chips. And I admit, when I started, I knew very li little. But today, I've come to the conclusion that they're really the core to understanding globalization, the balance of military power, and how our economy has changed since the first chips were, in were invented in the late 1950s. Yeah, yeah. You know, as I was reading your book, I sort of thought you drew you do you do draw an analogy between chips and oil, which you know everybody has an intuitive feeling about why oil and energy are at the uh, you know core of so much uh, geopolitical uh, uh, action. Um, and uh, it, it you know it really comes across. You may be, by the way, if your book catches on, you may be the Dan Jurgen of, uh, of of semiconductors, but it's very much in the. Um, very much in the tradition of those books that sort of tell uh, a, a general population about some of the powerful economic forces underlying geopolitical events. I'm thinking of guns, germs and steel and that sort of thing. So uh, many people will be watching us right now who don't necessarily have the same sort of intuitive feel for the importance of semiconductors, chips that they might have for oil, because, of course, most of us put uh, gasoline in our cars. So um, for those who have yet to read the book, um, uh, make make the argument about why semiconductors in some ways are the uh, you know oil of the 21st century or at, at least critical to um, not just our economies but to, to our national security. Well, the first thing to say is that the typical person doesn't realize it, but we touch dozens and in many cases hundreds of chips each day. In your smartphone, there could well be a dozen different chips. Your computer only functions thanks to the chips inside of it. When you log on to the internet, the internet exists on large numbers of servers, which are, uh, which are boxes of, of semiconductors, mostly. Uh, when you sit in your car, your car will have dozens, in some cases, hundreds of chips inside of it. Turn on your dishwasher, there's chips there, too, in your microwave. Today, almost anything with an on-off switch except for a light bulb will have some sort of chip inside of it. And although we never see the chips unless you take apart your iPhone or your computer, uh, in fact, you rely on them for almost everything in day-to-day -day life. Uh, so they're as important to the economy today as energy is. And as we put computing power in more and more things, we're going to become even more reliant on chips going forward. So they're as ubiquitous as oil, even if we see them less frequently than we do pumping up our cars. But there's a difference uh, with oil. And the difference is that unlike oil, the computer chip production process is concentrated in a small number of countries and controlled by just a couple of companies. In the oil industry, we think of Saudi Arabia being a big player, but the Saudis produce 10 to 15 percent of all the world's oil. By contrast, 90 percent of the most advanced processor chips today are produced by one company on the island of Taiwan. And across the supply chain that's used to produce advanced semiconductors, there's a number of parts of that process in which one company or a small number of companies uh, play an indispensable role. So there's even more concentration of production in semiconductors than there is in the oil industry. So let's talk a little bit about the um, security side of that um, from two different angles. One of the remarkable moments in your book is when you talk about, uh, you know, the world watching what America does in 1991 in the first Gulf War, where precision guided munitions land right on top of tanks. These are, of course, munitions that have been flown from far away, probably off the you know, deck of an aircraft carrier. Uh, they've been dropped by planes at high altitude and they hit their targets with perfect precision. And there's a whole bunch of other things that happened in 1991. And your book makes the point that the, the Russians, the Chinese and everybody else said, holy smokes, when they saw that. So, so talk a little bit about that, but also talk about 
you know, you, you, you sort of talk about it the way our, our, our entire lives are surrounded by chips. There's another uh, very interesting moment in your book where you say, you know, a chip may not make your coffee, but your coffee maker is going to use a chip to determine the mix and the temperature. So talk a little bit about the both the incredible advantages, but the strategic vulnerabilities that come from this permeation of our daily lives by, by, by semiconductors. Well, if you start with the defense technology side of things, Although chips emerged out of the demand for smarter guidance computers on missile systems in the Cold War, today defense uses constitute maybe 1% or 2% of chips that are produced. So it's a relatively small end market compared to smartphones or computers or even automobiles. Um, but more than ever before, defense systems are reliant on computer chips. And the Persian Gulf War, as you mentioned, was one of the first instances where we saw uh, what the application of computing power two missile systems and bombs could accomplish in terms of precision. But today, 30 years later, our military is even more reliant on computer chips. And in fact, every military is increasingly reliant on computer chips. And if you project forward 10 or 20 years more and uh, look at what the Defense Department in the U.S. or other countries' militaries are planning to roll out, they're envisioning uh, technologies that rely even more on computing power, will demand even more memory even more digital signals processing, all of which is about semiconductors. So envision, for example, an autonomous drone flying through a battlefield. That drone's going to need a lot of computing power, a lot of memory, and have a lot of sensors on it, and all that requires chips. And so as a result, as you say, chips aren't just about our, our, our coffee makers or our dishwashers, although that's important and we'd struggle to live without them. Uh, they're also about accessing the most advanced defense technology. And I think one of the interesting things we've seen in uh, the Russia-Ukraine war over the past a uh, couple of months, is that when Russian uh, munitions have been acquired on the battlefield and their guidance computers have been taken apart, one of the things that has been discovered is that uh, Russian missiles often rely very heavily on smuggled chips from the outside world, from the U.S., from Korea, from Taiwan, uh, because our chips are so much better than theirs that they've concluded they're best off smuggling in older American ships or older Korean ships for their own missile systems. And that shows you just how reliant they are, uh, and the entire world's militaries are on getting access to the most advanced ships that they can. You know, you're you're going to need to write an additional chapter, or maybe the two of us will write an op-ed because I, uh, you, you, you finished the book. I think just maybe as uh, as the uh, Russian attack on Ukraine occurred, but um, you know, even today, uh, uh, sitting on the intelligence committee as I do, I see this. Even today, military planners look at the number of tanks, the number of aircraft, the number of men. Um, but what we're seeing in Ukraine right now uh, is, a, is a transformation in that as, a, as an input around military strength, because as the Ukrainians and the Russians are demonstrating as we speak, you can have as many tanks as you want. But if those tanks are up against munitions that have highly advanced processors, the, the numbers almost don't matter. So, so um, you know, one of the conclusions here is and, and, and by the way, the other the other story of, of Ukraine is the is the sharing of intelligence, which is enabled, of course, by chips. But the but but I think you could even make an argument looking at Russia, Ukraine, that that really we got to sort of junk the old ways, the old World War Two ways of thinking about military power and really evaluate both the quantity and and quality of chips on the battle. Field. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And as you say, it's not just the chips in the munitions that are approaching their target. It's the satellite photos. It's the uh, signals intelligence. It's the communication of all of this data from the battlefield to decision makers, to munitions itself. And communication, signals intelligence, this is all about accessing the most advanced semiconductors. And right now, Ukraine has had the benefit both of Russia's lag in this sphere, 
but also of the U.S. supplying its extraordinary intelligence capabilities, which are largely made possible by, uh, by semiconductors, by sensors, and by computing power that uh, they've enabled. So um, let me take you in a direction, back to the coffee maker, let me take you into a direction that you don't go much in uh, on your book, uh, which is the vulnerability associated with the permeation through, uh, through all of our lives. Back to that coffee maker, right? It's the Internet of Things. There's just going to be nothing that isn't wired. There isn't going to be anything that isn't um, uh, suffused with chips. Now, um, I pretty quickly get out of my own area of expertise here, but chips can be hacked. The software can be hacked. Chips, chips can be accessed. Talk a little bit because it, it doesn't you don't you don't dwell on this in your book, but talk a little bit about the kinds of vulnerabilities that may be out there because of the Internet of Things, because of everything being full, full of chips. And, and, and what should guys like me do about that? It's true that there are uh, some instances of vulnerabilities being discovered inside of chips where they were designed in a way that. Uh, made their data visible, for example, to uh, parties that shouldn't have been able to acquire it. Uh, a couple of uh, famous examples of this in recent years are vulnerabilities called Spectre and Meltdown, which were visible in, in PC chips. Um, but I think if you, if you step back and look at the number of vulnerabilities in hardware, like chips, versus the number of vulnerabilities in software, uh, what you find is it's a lot easier um, to, to produce and to exploit vulnerabilities in software. And so I worry a lot more about uh, the types of traditional cyber vulnerabilities we think about than I, I do about hardware problems. It is an issue that we need to focus on. And I think if you look, for example, at where DARPA, the Defense Department's advanced research arm, is putting a lot of their focus, it's on how to verify that the chip you put in a military system actually works as intended, especially as the U.S. military relies even more on uh, chips produced abroad. But I think the scale of vulnerabilities in hardware is a lot less than you, you get in software. The, the real vulnerability I worry about is not that the chips we get will be compromised, but that we won't be able to access the chips in case there's uh, some sort of emergency or war in East Asia. Yep. Yep. Okay. So let's let's set the stage for that conversation. And this conversation ends with the question of uh, uh, of, of of what do we do now? Uh, but let's let's set set the stage uh, for that. There's 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 sort of two ways of thinking about innovation, right? There's sort of, let's, let's just call it sort of an American or a Western way, which the, it comes through in your story loud and clear, right? You know, you've got this incredible cast of characters, including like an Idaho-based potato farmer, you know, and disgruntled, you know, uh, software programmers who get angry at each other in Palo Alto, et cetera. It's chaotic, right? It's totally chaotic. And yet out of this chaos, um, you get the and, and I should point out chaos supported by research and development funded by the federal government, DARPA and other programs and the Pentagon um, out of this seeming chaos and a cast of characters that is out of a Hollywood movie. You get the very best. Even today, you get the very best innovation bar none. The other model, of course, is more. Let's think of it as a Chinese model or, you know, you certainly talk about it as an old Soviet model, which is we're going to build a city and this city is going to be dedicated to semiconductors and it will have a bureaucrat who is running it. This is kind of what the Chinese are doing now. They are literally building, um, you know, artificial intelligence cities. Which of those two models wins in the end? And what's the pluses and minuses of those two very, very different models? Well, I think answering that question first off depends on what you're trying to accomplish. And for the U.S., what we're trying to accomplish is innovating on the frontier of knowledge. So we don't know where we're trying to get to next because we're relying on the next generation of scientists and engineers and entrepreneurs to figure out what the next best thing is. Whereas if you're behind and trying to catch up, you already know what you're trying to accomplish. You're trying to accomplish what other people did 5, 10, or 15 years ago. And so it's a bit more straightforward of a process to identify the priority 
and then catch up to it. So in some ways, China's got an easier task because they're still trying to catch up to where we are and where some of our allies in in Asia, like the Taiwanese or the Koreans are. But setting aside that, I think the U.S. method or the Western capitalistic method has obvious benefits. It's produced the innovation that you mentioned, the innovation that led to the emergence of the chip and it's spread across society. It's driven down costs uh, in, in a really tremendous fashion. Today, uh, we've got computing power that costs one billionth of what it did 60 years ago. So the cost uh, reduction is, is really extraordinary. But the Chinese have some assets as well. For one thing, uh, most of the electronics systems that chips get put into, whether it's smartphones or computers or servers, are actually assembled in China. So the chips are imported from abroad, from Korea, from Taiwan, from the U.S. China spends more money every year importing chips than it does importing oil. Uh, but they're assembled in China, and so China has some influence in uh, how they are used when they get in uh, final systems. So that's one advantage that China has that we don't have. Second is that China is pouring tons of money into their semiconductor industry. It's hard to get an exact figure, but it's certainly in the many tens of billions of dollars and probably in the hundreds of billions of dollars over this decade. And so even if China's success rate is pretty low, the amount of money that they're pouring in is going to guarantee them uh, some successes. And so the, the challenge we face is not only to have a higher success rate than China, but have a, such a, a better rate of success that we're able to counteract the fact that they're spending a lot more money uh, than we are. And so that's really the, the structure of the race today. And I think although the Chinese have made many errors along the way and although there's a lot of inefficiency in their system, it would be wrong to write them off. If, if any country has shown over the last 40 years that they've got a lot of capabilities, that they've got uh, a government that is willing to put any resources necessary towards achieving its goals, it's China's. And so it would be wrong just to rest on our laurels to say our system has worked in the past, therefore it will work uh, uh, flawlessly in the future. And I think we need to be focusing again on making sure, A, how can we jump ahead, increase our speed of innovation, but also B, how can we make sure that China is not taking advantage of our technology as it's trying to overtake us? At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place. Like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Yep, yep. And, and of course, my question is, is a little bit of a tick, trick question because, um, you know, for the free market purists who would say that innovation comes out of a purely free market environment, the chaos of Silicon Valley and all the stories that you tell, the reality is that this industry would never have gotten off the ground in the United States had the Pentagon not really dumped immense amounts, not only basic research through DARPA and stuff, but at, in the early days of semiconductors, really the, the Pentagon was the only customer, right? And they were, as you say in your book, uh, you know, they... They, they were paying any price. This was not a consumer business, right? So even this incredible chaos, uh, constructive chaos of innovation in the 1950s and 1960s was driven by largely by the by the Pentagon. So uh, check me on that. Am, am I right about that? And secondly, let me ask the next obvious question, which is, 
you know, today so much innovation is 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 not happening necessarily inside of DARPA. It's happening, and you know, it, it's the old Hewlett Packard model, right? You know, six guys writing software code for AI. You know, does does the American cutting edge today require? You know, the old school Pentagon dumps billions or is it just supporting those five or six people in a garage? Well, I think you're right that the the origins of the the chip emerged not solely from from private sector forces, but there was a really careful balance that was calculated between the role of the Pentagon and defense spending and the role of private firms. And what you find is that the Pentagon was pouring funds into research into microelectronics in general. Um, but it's also the case that the two engineers who invented the chip were uh, working not on Pentagon research contracts or uh, specifically for defense projects, but uh, on their own. They were uh, pursuing their own um, interests and their own inventions. So there was always a bit of a balance. On the one hand, companies liked getting research dollars from the Pentagon. On the other hand, the companies that did the best were the ones that kept the, the Pentagon and the government in general a little bit at arm's length because they realized that the big market was actually not uh, selling to the Defense Department. That was always a limited market. It was sizable, but uh, limited. The big market was the consumer market. And so the firms that really succeeded were those that were able to take technology that they tested in the defense market and then turn it into a mass market consumer product. And that, I think, is still the challenge today. You know, We, we still see the, the government playing a, a actually pretty significant role when it comes to really cutting-edge research, not in terms of commercializing products, but in terms of the far-out mm-hmm. 10- to 20-year uh, time horizon but then the turning of those products, those speculative technologies, into commercial products, that's still a role, I think, where we ought to uh, leave uh, private sector firms to, to drive things. And that's worked well over the past, um, the past 60 years. And I think Congress actually deserves a fair amount of credit in the, the CHIPS legislation for putting some additional funds towards the far-off R&D, uh, making sure we've got these new ideas that are filtering in uh, into our engineering system and then letting companies pick them up and run with them and find the right commercial end use. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, you're, th- th- that story really comes across in your book. You know, um, in politics, I sometimes wave this uh, phone around um, because, you know, in, in the political argument, there is the argument I was sort of uh, trick questioning you with, which is, you know, is it private market or is it government support? You know, if you, if you look at your personal device, whether it's an iPhone or whatever it is, um, you know, immense amounts of wealth created by the consumer product companies that put it all together. But almost everything that's cool about it, whether we're talking about the semiconductors or the global positioning satellites that are spinning above our heads um, or the voice recognition software, that stuff, it all traces back to some extent to original government research, right? So when, when Americans hear you know, that their taxpayer dollars are going to basic research and entities that they've never heard of, like DARPA or whatever, um, that's actually a, that's a, that's a strategically important thing for us. No, that, that's absolutely right. And I think we've seen DARPA in the last couple of years uh, double down on its focus on microelectronics and semiconductors. Uh, and that's something that will almost certainly yield military benefits. But I think you're right to suggest that uh, as those technologies mature, they're going to have profound economic benefits as well as U.S. companies can pick them up and then commercialize them. So... Um Let's let's keep uh, unpacking this, you know, vulnerabilities question, because, um, you know, Congress did just act with the CHIPS Act. I think there's a lot of misinformation and beliefs out there that, that probably could be straightened out a little bit. Um, but let's um, let's let's start on the consumer side. At the end of your book, you make an argument that if Moore's law, this idea that, you know, the number of processors on a semiconductor doubles every whatever it is at year or 18 months, that if that stops, 
you paint a pretty catastrophic picture. Um, you know, you suggest that, that companies will fail, economies will be vulnerable. I didn't really get that because, and 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 stop me when I when when you disagree with me. But it sort of feels to me that like if the increase, the remarkable increase in in processing power on chips out there slows down, Moore's law begins to erode. Isn't it just true that we'll have like less cool? iPhones will have less functionality, you know, our military weapons won't be quite as, you know, James Bondy. Why why do you paint such a dire scenario around the uh slowdown of Moore's law because and again check me on this, I'm not an expert, but eventually Moore's law hits some physical barriers, right? The size of an electron ain't going to change. So 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 talk a little bit about that. That's right. So Moore's law is a is actually not a law, it's a prediction, although it's often called a law, uh coined by one of the co-founders of Intel, Gordon Moore. Uh, in 1965, and, and he saw that the number of transistors you could put on a chip, which is rough, roughly a proxy for its computing power, was doubling at the time, doubling annually. Since then, it's doubled once every two years or so. And that's proven true since that point all the way up to the present, which is why the cost of computing has fallen by around a billion fold. And the number of uh, transistors you can put on each chip, and thus the amount of computing power on a chip, has risen by about a billion fold since then. Just to give you an example, the first commercially available chip in the early 60s had four transistors on it. So it could remember uh, or process four ones or four zeros or, or four digits in total. Today, if you buy a new iPhone, it'll have 15 billion transistors on it. Uh, so that's the increase Moore's Law has given us. And it's had ramifications far beyond just smartphones or computers. I, I think it's actually hard for us to conceptualize how that type of exponential growth really works over time. I mean, imagine if airplanes flew twice as fast every year or if the size of houses grew uh, at a rate so that they doubled every year. In the rest of the economy, uh, we've seen nothing like this growth. And so we've come to take for granted the idea that we'll have more computing power we can apply to almost every problem uh, without limits. And, and that's been correct. That's been uh, what the semiconductor industry has delivered since 1960. But if you look out about a decade away, uh, as you say, Jim, we're going to reach a point where uh, we start hitting physical limits where it's uh, it's too it's now no longer possible to create circuits that are um, any smaller. And right now, the circuits in your phone, for example, each one will be smaller than a coronavirus. So we're already talking about tiny uh, transistors, and shrinking them further is going to be a problem. Now, you're right to say that if the ability to shrink transistors stops and our ability to uh, get more computing power out of each chip slows down, that the economy is not going to freeze, uh, but productivity growth has been really dependent on our ability to solve new problems with computing power. And I think if you look across the economy, the, uh, the number of sectors that are hugely dependent on computing power today to solve the hardest problems in them, whether it's healthcare, whether it's automobiles, whether it's advanced manufacturing, um, all of them have been transformed in the past decade by computing. And if that growth rate stops, I think uh, our entire economy will feel really tremendous shocks because we've all taken for granted uh, the improvements that the semiconductor industry have given us basically for free. Okay. Okay. Great. So let's take let's take another uh, even far more dire scenario that is actually very very current right now, uh, and that is the possibility of conflict um, in the Taiwan Strait and in particular, well, or more broadly speaking, in in Asia. Um, you make the point in your book that uh, TSMC on, on Taiwan, they've got a number of fabs, I guess, on the western side of that island, uh, accounts for an immense amount of the uh, productive capacity in that industry. 
obviously the trade ties, the global uh, supply chains, meaning, you know, any given product will have stuff made all over the place that needs to move around and ships and stuff. You do paint an apocalyptic picture of what happens if there's military conflict in the, in the Taiwan Strait. And I, I, I want you to really explain this clearly because, you know, people are envisioning today that possibility. And I'm a little worried that people are thinking about the possibility of going to war in the Taiwan Strait as, you know, an Iraq war, but a little bit worse. Right. You know, it's just and, and I think it's really important that people understand uh, how very sensitive that region is to the possibility of violence. And you really paint a very grim picture. So talk, talk, talk a little bit about kind of what happens to the global economy if risks are perceived to, I mean, forget about war, but, but go to war. Um, what happens if all of a sudden that region becomes immensely unstable? Today, Taiwan produces 90% of the most advanced processor chips, the type of chip that, that is in a phone or a PC or uh, a data center or uh, on a cell phone tower. And over 35% of all new computing power each year is produced on Taiwan. So Taiwan's importance to not only the global tech industry, but uh, the world economy really can't be underestimated. You know, just this past two years, uh, we had a semiconductor shortage globally, uh, which caused hundreds of billions of dollars in damage across the global economy. For the auto industry alone, uh, which faced uh, delays in the ability to access chips, there was a $200 billion global cost in terms of cars that weren't possible to be finished because the chips weren't available. And yet the chip shortage... Uh, happened even as the number of chips we produced actually grew. So the world produced 8% more chips in 2020 and had a double-digit rate of increase in the number of chips in 2021. It's just that demand grew even further. Uh, And as a result of that, we didn't have the the number of chips we needed, and the cost was measured in the hundreds of billions of dollars. Imagine a situation in which it wasn't a question of uh, demand jumping ahead of supply, but supply falling by one-third, because that's the share of new processor chips that are produced on Taiwan, the results would be catastrophic. It'd be almost impossible to buy a smartphone for the next year. Uh, Data center build-out would grind to a halt. Uh, Around half of PC processors, slightly less than that, uh, are produced uh, by TSMC, Taiwan's biggest uh, uh, semiconductor company. Uh, Cell phone towers are crucially reliant on um, chips made on Taiwan. Uh, The auto industry would face delays far worse than it faced this year. And then down the chain of goods that rely on semiconductors from dishwashers to microwaves, uh, if there's a third fewer processor chips in the world, that is a lot of goods that won't be produced, and the cost will almost certainly be measured in the trillions once you consider all the downstream effects of that. So the, the, the impact would be dramatic, far worse, uh, an order of magnitude worse than the economic impact globally of the Russia-Ukraine war this year, for example. I think we're talking about an economic shock that's uh, that's on the on the level of what we experienced in 2020 when we had to shut down part of the world economy due to COVID. And it's something that we're not at all prepared for, nor is it something that we can easily remedy. Um, because if we were to lose Taiwan's shipmaking capabilities, it's not like we could set up new facilities in the U.S. and have them running in a couple of months' time. The reality is that TSMC, the Taiwanese company that specializes in processor chips, produces the most advanced chips in the world. They do things that no other company in the world knows how to do. So we just lose that capability and it would take a decade to rebuild it. Okay, so that 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 is dire enough in and of itself, but I but you in your answer you focused on Taiwan and TSMC. And um that's important, but um but I, I want to get back to those supply chains and, and what's actually happening in Japan, what's happening in Korea and what's happening in China. So let's just imagine 
there's no war, but because the Chinese have decided to up their um, their antagonism against Taiwan, we decide that we're going to isolate economically China. Um, so now Chinese products, Chinese manufacturing facilities, Chinese chip operations are no longer available to the West. What what happens then? Well, I think first off is to say that you'd have ramifications far beyond electronics. So from toys to textiles to shoe production, there's a lot that goes on in China. But just in the electronics part of the, the economy itself, most of the chips that China buys are sent on to export uh, in third countries later on. So they're put in a smartphone, put in a PC, put in a server, and then sent abroad. And so if trade with China were cut off, that would all become impossible. Now, we could still probably uh, build smartphones, but we need to find new places to put them together. Uh, we'd have the components because the components are mostly uh, Korean, Taiwanese, Japanese made, but we wouldn't have the army of hundreds of thousands of assembly workers that today know how to do it. So could you start up assembly in India or Vietnam? After some time lag, you could, um, but it would be far from a seamless process. It would be uh, immensely costly and disruptive as well. So, so let me let me take this to what feels like it may be um, a positive uh, attribute of this integration. And in fact, you make reference to it in your book. There's some Taiwanese executives who believe that because um, the world is, if I may use a, 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 a negative term, really hostage to uh, wildly dispersed operations. It's not just Taiwan. It's also Korea and Japan. And it's the ability to sail ships in, uh, you know, in, in Asian waters. It begins to feel a little bit like what we thought a lot about when I was a kid, which is the mutually assured destruction associated with nuclear weapons. Right. We we sort of all relied on the notion that the catastrophe were the Soviet Union and the United States to go to war. The catastrophe was so bad and so unthinkable that policymakers would do everything to avoid it. And in fact, they did. So. Um, is that a, is that an apt analogy? I mean, you know, should uh, should I take some comfort in the notion that when people really come to understand what military conflict in that region looks like, they will perhaps step back from the brink because of the effects it would have on the world economy, which, as you say in your book, boy, you thought the global depression associated with covid ba- is bad. You, you ain't seen nothing yet if you have you know military conflict in the region. Well, I think this idea of mutually assured economic destruction might be true, but I have to admit my confidence in it is slipping. I think one reason is that if you look at uh, the Russia-Ukraine war and the Russia-Europe relationship, this was the thesis that led Germany to integrate its, uh, its manufacturing sector with Russian energy supplies over the past two decades on the idea that the more integrated Russia was economically uh, with Europe and with Germany in particular, the more likely Russia was to behave internationally. And that, that bet has paid off very badly uh, for the Germans. Integration did nothing to secure them and arguably gave Russia a, a powerful weapon uh, to use against the German economy. So I think we've seen just this year an example of why countries don't always prioritize their economies when they're trying to achieve geopolitical aims. And I look at the Chinese leadership today and I admit that I'm becoming less confident that they're focused primarily on economic considerations. And if you look at how China's developed since Deng Xiaoping in the late 1970s. Certainly, there's been a lot of focus on the economy, but the past couple of years have been different. We've seen Xi Jinping lead a really costly and uh, economically disruptive attack on his own uh, tech firms that has crushed their valuations on Chinese stock markets. We've seen the perpetuation of the zero COVID policy in Beijing. I mean, just think, China could have imported 
effective vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna two years ago now, uh, but chose not to for reasons of national pride. And as a result of it, has had to impose repeated lockdowns across uh, its country at major economic cost. Uh, that does not look to me like a government that is focused above all on GDP growth. And so I look at Chinese policymaking today, and I'm much less confident that economic rationality will persist. I'm also not all that sure that the information that's landing on Xi Jinping's desk produced by his intelligence agencies is giving him a clear picture of exactly how complicated the supply chains are and how reliant China is on, on peace for its economic stability. So I think anyone who's highly confident in mutually assured economic destruction, I think, isn't really reading the news properly over the past couple of years, because everything that I'm seeing from the Russia-Ukraine war, the collapse of the Russia-Europe energy relationship, or China's own zero-COVID policies, suggests to me that there's a lot more uncertainty about where China's headed and its willingness to bear economic costs. I think the final point is that if you're sitting in Beijing and you think that the U.S. is less able to bear economic costs than you are for pursuit of geopolitical goals, China might wager that a costly but short uh, war uh, might be something that it could win and the U.S. would be unwilling to fight because the cost would be too high for the U.S. to endure. And so I think when you put all those pieces together, I'm not confident that mutually assured economic destruction works. I hope that it does, but I think we should prepare for the eventuality that it doesn't. Good, good. We're going to come back to that preparation. It'll probably be the last uh, topic we have a chance to explore. But because this is so important, I want to... I want to um... Uh, push back a little bit. And the, re- the, way, and the way I want to push back is by saying um, I c- completely agree with you that uh, leaders like Putin and, um, and Xi are talking in terms of nationalism and national glory and honor. These are things that are not economically inclined, and it leads a guy like Putin to do what he has done. But here's my pushback. Um, uh, whether he knows it or not, Putin has destroyed his country. He's just and he's, he's taken Russia back 50 years. Uh, he's got hundreds of thousands of people leaving. His military has been shown to be a paper tiger. It's getting its ass kicked in, in Ukraine. Um, you know, that's a terrible strategic thing. You know, all these rest of regions are now, you know, saying, hey, we, we shouldn't fear these guys quite. You know, he said it's, it, it's been an unmitigated catastrophe. And with the passage of time, um, it's only going to be more so. He may lose his head. Right. Who knows? But anyway, that's my point. Number one. Point number two, uh, just to keep this conversation going, um, chips are fundamentally different than oil, right? And what I mean by that is the Russians can pull oil out of the ground, put it in a tube and send it to India or to China. If we decide that the Chinese don't get to export chips to China or India, who are currently buying Russian oil, we just have to say, hey, you know, because we, we, we actually control critical elements of the production process through companies that do ultraviolet uh, lithography, we can't cut off Russian oil, but we can cut off Russian uh, Chinese chips, right? So aren't those two fundamental strategic differences? Oh, and by the way, let me add a third. The third one I would add just to sort of keep you talking about the subject is that, you know, Russia has been an economic mess for a very long time that has survived because it sits on a pool of oil. The deal in China since I was a child was you don't get to play in politics, uh, Chinese citizen. Uh, you, you're you going to put up with a lot of repression in exchange. We're going to make you wealthy. Your, our economy is going to grow 10 percent every year. Oh, my gosh, that deal goes away overnight when that happens. So so. So address address those three, what I would argue are pretty profound strategic differences vis-a-vis what Russia did in Ukraine. Well, I think you're right that the war has been a disaster for Russia, and I, I hope that the Chinese see it that way as well. Um, 
But I'm not sure that they're looking at the failures of the Russian military and assuming that their military would perform just as badly. Maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't. I, I, I don't know the answer to that, but I, I also don't know what Xi Jinping thinks the answer to that is as well. He might well think the Russians are poorly organized, but we're better. I don't know. On, on the question of, of U.S. control of core chip-making technologies, you know, that's absolutely right. Today, if you want to make an advanced semiconductor, you can't do it without U.S. software and U.S.-made machine tools. And this is a huge strategic advantage right now. We do know that the Chinese are pouring funds into their program to domesticate these technologies. Right now, they've got a long way to go. Um, but it's a key focus of the Chinese government. And over time, we should expect that they'll make at least some progress. It's going to be a long road for them. Um, but they're prioritizing this as, a, as an issue not only of technological policy or economic policy, but an issue of national security. But yeah, they're vulnerable right now. Uh, there's no doubt about it. And, and just as we speak, uh, the U.S. government is rolling out new restrictions uh, on the ability uh, for China to buy some of this chip-making technology and therefore to produce uh, advanced chips at home. So agree with you on that. We'll see how long this advantage lasts. I hope it lasts a long time, but I think we have work to do to solidify uh, the, this advantage relative to China's own domestic efforts. Um, I think on the, the Chinese social contract at home, you know, I, I, I think it's probably right that the Chinese populace would be deeply unhappy with a major economic crisis, even if it involve them taking over Taiwan. But the question isn't really whether the Chinese polity could survive it, but what does Xi Jinping Jinping think they could survive? And right now, I worry that the Chinese think that their power has grown dramatically. Uh, Every assessment of uh, the balance of military power in the Taiwan Strait suggests that the balance has shifted dramatically in China's direction. Um, The Chinese leadership thinks that they're given too small of a role in the world stage relative to their economic growth over the past couple of decades. And so I, I think there is a risk that the Chinese get overconfident and, and, and try something in Taiwan. Uh, I don't know that it's the most likely outcome uh, over the next couple of years, but it's a lot more likely today than it was just a couple of years ago. And so I think as a result, we've got to at least prepare for it and take it seriously um, because the days when the U.S. could simply diffuse a China-Taiwan crisis like Bill Clinton did in 1996 by simply sailing an aircraft carrier through the Taiwan Straits, those days are over. Uh, the reality is that China is a really serious military competitor, and the Chinese know it. And I think that leaves them in a position to take more risks than they would have in the past. Yep, yep. Well, um, an unknowable answer. Uh, y- you know, uh, and national security people need to not hope; they need to plan. <laughs> so, to some extent, to some extent, we're having a little bit of an academic conversation here. But one critical part of planning that I feel very strongly about, and I think your book makes a huge contribution here, policymakers in China, in Asia, and in the United States need to understand the implications of their actions. And your book does a great job talking about the economic devastation visited upon the world associated with disruptions, particularly catastrophic disruptions in this industry. Um, so that's that's really, really important. Um so in the remaining time, um, we get to the question of, okay, so what do we do about it? And, um, and, uh, and I want to draw this out because I, I, I read your conclusion. I was like, okay, uh, Chris is going to tell us exactly what we need to do about it. And, uh, and you, you, you definitely have some ideas, but I, I want to tease something out. Let's start with this. Um, Congress just passed the CHIPS Act in bipartisan fashion. Yay, that's great, right? Bipartisan, that's wonderful. Spending a whole bunch of money on something that would have been unthinkable probably 20 years ago, an American industrial policy. I will tell you the Europeans are not happy with us because they don't like us subsidizing our businesses, all that good stuff. But here's the key question I have for you. 
Um, a lot of people supported the CHIPS Act because they said, you know what it's going to do? It's going to stop those vulnerabilities in the global supply chain. We'll be able to, you know, assure our automobiles don't get hung up in parking lots because they don't have chips. Everything will be great because it'll all be right here. Um, is that going to be the result of the CHIPS Act? Well, I, th- I think probably not, or at least not in any sort of direct fashion. You know, the reality is that we're going to rely on international supply chains to produce chips for the foreseeable future. Uh, there's crucial machines produced in the Netherlands or in Japan that you can't make chips without. Uh, in, in Korea and Taiwan, there are unique capabilities that other firms don't have. And, and this internationalization is not a bad thing. This has provided the efficiencies that have reduced the cost of computing power and made all of the computing we take for granted possible. I think the, the risks that we need to be aware of are where are there geopolitical vulnerabilities that we haven't focused on and prepared for? You know, I'm not worried about the fact that we're reliant on the Netherlands to provide one of the most important types of tools used in chip making. You know, they've been a friend for many decades. We see the world in similar ways, and the likelihood of problems coming from that direction is low. Similarly with Japan, uh, there's a lot of overlap between how the U.S. and Japan see the world. Our chip industries are uh, synergetic. That's not problematic. The, the risks are twofold, I think. One is that we become increasingly reliant on China not only to assemble electronics, but increasingly to produce chips, because China's massive subsidy campaign is going to see its share in the global chip industry grow. It'll start at the low-tech end of the industry at first before trying to move up the value chain. But I think unless current trends change, China's going to be a much bigger player in the chip industry in 2030 than it is today. And that creates more vulnerability, more reliance on China. Number two is the Taiwan question. You know, on the one hand, I think we've got many reasons to make sure that Taiwan is defended and secure against the Chinese attack. On the other hand, I think anyone who looks at a situation where 90% of the most advanced ships are produced in one small island that happens to be the world's naughtiest geopolitical dispute would say that's not a great way to structure your tech industry. And so the more we can do to diversify where advanced ships are produced, whether in the U.S. or in Korea or in Europe, That's great. I think that's an important step that will limit China's ability to hold the rest of the world hostage uh, uh, to a potential military escalation in and around Taiwan. And and the CHIPS Act, I think, makes important steps in that direction by funding more advanced shipmaking in the U.S. And I think the key to understanding the CHIPS Act is to say that actually other governments have been funding their own chip industries for a long time, providing tax incentives, for example, that make it cheaper to manufacture chips in many parts of Asia than in the U.S. And so what we're really doing with this legislation is just equalizing the cost. Chip making is cheaper abroad, not because of labor cost differentials, not because workers are cheaper, but really because of tax incentives and tax policies in other countries. And so it's not like the market was working efficiently to see chip industries migrate to Asia. Instead, it was tax policies in other countries uh, that were providing the subsidies that made it more cost effective to do so. And so I think Congress is right to say we can't let that determine the geography of where this crucial technology is made, we need to provide some incentives on our end to make sure we've got at least some of the most advanced ships made onshore. Yeah, no, and you're, uh, you're, this, is, this is even more complicated than you say. You hold ASML up as an example of a Dutch company. Uh, interestingly enough, ASML actually has one of their primary manufacturing facilities right smack in the middle of my congressional district in southwestern Connecticut in, uh, in, uh, in Wilton, Connecticut. Um, and so it's not just where the company comes from, it's where they do their business. Um, so, OK, let's 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 just spend two or three more minutes on that. You know, the CHIPS Act is going to send about 50 billion dollars to an industry. That's pretty remarkable uh, relative to the way Washington used to think about free markets and the way people used to think about picking winners and losers. So over what time period 
do you think that expenditure is likely to make us more secure and and how much more secure? What kind of bang are we getting for the buck there? I think we are actually already seeing some of the impact of, of the CHIPS legislation. Uh, we've seen major announcements by companies to build new facilities in the U.S., both U.S. companies like Micron building a new facility in New York, Intel in Ohio, but also by foreign companies like Samsung, for example, is building a new facility in Texas, and TSMC, the world's leader, uh, is going to build a meaningful new facility in Arizona, all because of the CHIPS Act. And so that's that's already happening. Construction is underway on some of these projects, and we're going to see them operational over the next couple of years. That's a positive step, but it's not going to mean that East Asia is no longer important, that we're not going to have international supply chains that are very complex, but it is going to mean that we're going to have more diversification uh, and more production in the U.S. rather than in geopolitical hotspots that I think does leave us more secure. I think the second part of the CHIPS Act that people talk about less but is actually really important is only around $40 billion of the dollars are devoted towards these incentives for manufacturing. The rest, about $10 billion, is going towards uh, more spending on R&D and next-generation technologies. And I think uh, this is a smart way to structure the legislation. It's not only about today, it's also about tomorrow. And we've seen the U.S. government has a pretty good track record when it comes to uh, funding scientists and engineers to think about what's beyond the current cutting edge of what commercial firms are able to do uh, and investing more in that. And I, I suspect that when we look back in 20 years or 25 years and ask what was the biggest impact of the CHIPS Act, it'll actually not have been the manufacturing, although that's important. It'll have been the increase in R&D spend, which I think is going to be really impactful uh, over the, the next decade or two. Yeah, yeah, I'm a big fan of the concept. The more I the more I study innovation in this country, the more I dedicate time in Washington to making sure we don't uh, lose out on the race of, uh, of, of investment in research and development. So, um, Chris, I think we've got time for two questions. We've probably got just over five minutes or so. So question number one, um, I'm glad to hear that you uh, uh, believe that the CHIPS Act is money well spent. Um, the follow-on question, of course, is what else should we be doing in the service of, you know, security and stability in this critical, critical segment? Well, part of what's happening right now, and I think there's more work to be done, is is actually mapping out the supply chain of semiconductors and understanding where are we vulnerable to disruption, uh, especially uh, in East Asia. Uh, earlier this year, uh, it emerged that uh, most of the world's neon gas, which is one of the gases you need to produce chips, uh, was produced either in Ukraine or in Russia. Uh, in, in Ukraine, it was actually produced in the steel plant in Mariupol that Russia besieged for several months um, before finally taking it. So there's a major disruption in uh, neon gas markets earlier this year that it could have had a, a big impact on chip markets. It ended up not having that effect because there was some stockpiling and some other sources of supply that came online. But it was an illustration, I think, of the way that we only barely understand uh, just the number of inputs to chip making. And there's 2,000 different steps that's needed to take to make the uh, a typical advanced chip. And so mapping out the supply chain and understanding the vulnerabilities to countries like Russia or China, I think, is a, a crucial part of the effort. And we're still in the process of doing that. I think the second thing is, although the government, I think, has woken up to the challenge, I think many private companies are still only beginning to realize that uh, geopolitical risk in East Asia is real, that China-Taiwan risk is real, and that they need to start thinking more seriously about uh, their security of supply and their manufacturing processes in case something goes wrong uh, in East Asia. I, I think it's a positive sign that Apple is moving a bit more of its uh, assembly to Vietnam and especially to India. Um, it's a slow step. It's a small share still of Apple's assembly, but it's a, 
a sign at least of diversification and of preparing in case something uh, does go wrong. I think more companies need to start thinking along those lines, not because we want it to happen. We certainly don't. Not even because it's the most likely outcome. I think there's still a good chance we can avoid something like that. But the more prepared we are, the more China will realize that the costs of moving on Taiwan are large and that their costs that we're uh, for, for China are large, and the costs that we're able to sustain because we've done our preparation. And that's something that a couple years ago we'd done no preparation for. Now I think, thanks to the CHIPS Act, we're beginning to prepare for. But the more prepared we are, the less likely China actually is to try to move on Taiwan. Yep, yep. Well, I've got one more question that gets us into sort of science fiction. But, um, you know, the other thing that I need to, that we need to do, and I think your book is a good step in this direction, is we really need people to understand uh, the catastrophic cost of instability uh, in the Taiwan Strait and around the Taiwan Strait, what that means for people. Uh, and we're just talking economically here. We're not even talking about, you know, loss of life and that sort of thing. I, you're, you, were, you were too young to remember this, but in 1983, there was a movie, War Games, uh, in which, you know, the nuclear apocalypse is about to occur. And Joshua, the computer, does all the calculations. And at the end, it arrives at this conclusion, which is the only winning move is not to play. And that's not an argument for anybody backing down, but it's an argument for people to sort of take a deep breath and spend as much time thinking about avoiding that catastrophe as they are thinking about how to win that catastrophe. Um, but we have time for one more quick question, which is uh, one thing that I really enjoyed about your conclusion is you do acknowledge that probably we are going to see a radical technological leap at some point away from the silicon and the and the and the um, electrons running around on pieces of metal, ever smaller pieces of metal and silicon to a whole new technology. Take uh, take us into the realm of science fiction and tell us where where does this industry go uh, in the next 20 years and what are the implications for uh, for regular people? Well, at some point, as we discussed earlier, Moore's law is going to slow down. It'll get, be impossible to make transistors even smaller than uh, the, the, the size they are now. And at that point, we'll need to turn to alternative paradigms of computing. Right now, there's a lot of investment going into quantum computing, trying to find ways to make that commercially viable. I think at some point, we will have commercially uh, relevant quantum computing, though we're still some years away from that at this point. And then there's other ways of doing computing using DNA, for example, or other types of biology, which uh, could down the road replace silicon chips. I, I think we're, we're, we're still a long way away from seeing that uh, play a big role. You know, the reality is that uh, the entire computing infrastructure is based around silicon today. Uh, all the engineers who design chips, all the ultra-precise machinery uh, that works on uh, chips is designed around silicon. And so we're going to be in a silicon-based uh, computing infrastructure for a long time. But people are already thinking hard and uh, and investing a lot uh, around finding the next paradigm. And I think it's you know, important for the U.S. as a country as well to think about uh, what are the pathways to making sure that the next computing paradigm, whether it's quantum computing or something else that becomes more important, uh, is also something that the U.S. and its allies uh, play the biggest role in because it will certainly have not only economic ramifications, but also just like silicon chips, uh, major security ramifications too. Excellent, excellent. Well, uh, Chris, thank you very much. A big thank you to C-SPAN for arranging for this conversation. We have been talking with Professor Chris Miller, uh, who's an associate professor at the Fletcher School at, uh, at Tufts, about his uh, remarkable new book, Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology. Uh, really enjoy the read, and I hope, uh, hope it uh, gets out there and, and lots of people read it. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. 
learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers' lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts.